the fading light of a campfire glimmered on the wall of a cave where a young boy sat on a bed of grass. He was drained from the long walk to the ocean that day, so he leaned against his mother's leg. Across the fire on another mat, the boy's father showed his sister how to drill holes into seashells using a sharp bone tool. His father wore a necklace made of similar white, red, and black shells. Just behind his sister, another family sat around a separate fire. Most of them were resting after their meal of roasted vegetables and mussels. One member of this family, an old woman, was using a sharp tool to scratch the surface of a red stone. Curious, the boy got up and peered over her shoulder. He saw a pattern of crossing lines etched into the smooth surface of the stone. Intrigued, he watched her add another line with three slow strokes of the tool. Unsure what this meant, the boy lost interest and walked over to an old man who was leaning over a fire. This man was using a twig to stir a viscous red liquid within a large abalone shell. He had made this substance by adding ochre powder to the resin of a yellowwood tree. Once this mixture was warm, he would use it to glue a stone point to a spear shaft. As the boy turned back towards his mat, he saw three completed spears leaning against the cave wall. They were tipped with beautiful white, red, and brown stones. The red one had been given as a gift to his father by someone from another group. As he laid back down on his mat and drifted to sleep, he smelled the pleasant odor of the laurel leaves scattered among his bedding. This boy belonged to one of the oldest distinct archaeological cultures, the Still Bay, that appeared about 73,000 years ago along the coast of southern Africa. These people were some of the first to leave behind evidence of symbolic behavior. The nature of their actions lays at the center of one of the fundamental debates about human prehistory. Welcome to Our Prehistory, Episode 4, The Middle Stone Age of Southern Africa. In our first two episodes, we explored the origin of our species, 300,000 years ago in Africa. We learned that the earliest Homo sapiens used more sophisticated stone tools than preceding hominins to create spears and knives tipped with points. They lived in small groups at low densities across most of Africa for hundreds of thousands of years. The apparent absence of innovation in culture during this long period has led some scholars to believe that early Homo sapiens lacked some form of intelligence possessed by modern humans today. In the next few episodes, we will move on to the second half of the Middle Stone Age. During this period of prehistory, human foraging bands across Africa underwent subtle changes in their lifeways. At times, new social dynamics developed that linked groups across vast distances. Symbolic objects and new technologies appeared and hint at a growing imagination and intelligence. Today, we will look specifically at Southern Africa, which has some of the most well-studied and complex cultures of the period. Learning about the end of the Middle Stone Age brings us to one of the most hotly debated questions in the field of anthropology. And that is, when did humans evolve to have our current range of cognitive capabilities? This debate has been ongoing between academics for decades, and there are still substantial disagreements. But this question lies at humanity's foundation 
and its answer affects how we explain key events at the start of our prehistory. So before we get into the specifics of the Southern African record, I'd like to lay out the basic contours of this argument. One side of the debate proposes that humans evolved modern intelligence towards the end of the Middle Stone Age, between 60 and 40,000 years ago, much later than the first appearance of our species. According to proponents of this theory, a so-called human revolution was the result of a biological transformation in the brains of humans, invisible in the fossil record, that endowed people with new cognitive abilities. More complex language and symbolic reasoning were facilitated by an evolutionary rewiring of the brain. Under this hypothesis, these capabilities would have allowed human foraging bands to cooperate more efficiently and innovate powerful new technologies, which sparked the human expansion out from Africa about 50,000 years ago. People were able to adapt to new environments and successfully colonize other continents. One of the main sources of archaeological evidence for this theory is the presence of large quantities of prehistoric art and innovative technologies in Europe, dating to periods after Homo sapiens arrived there. Cave paintings, engravings, and ivory sculptures from the Upper Paleolithic period of Europe are unequaled at any previous time in prehistory and seem to represent a new creative aspect of human behavior. Many academics dispute the theory of a human revolution occurring 50,000 years ago, and they do so for a few reasons. First, archaeological discoveries in Africa made in the past two decades have shown that simple forms of symbolism and inventive technologies predated the migration out of this continent. This new research has shown that sophisticated human behavior, including the use of complex tools, diversifying of survival strategies, and creation of group identities, started popping up more than 100,000 years ago. Second, some experts argue that complex behavior, like artistic production, may not necessarily be the result of a biological change, but instead might have been prompted by the circumstances in which people lived. For example, changes in the climate or in the human population size might have incentivized the adoption of new technologies and social practices. So instead of a revolution, they propose a gradual development of modern human behavior using cognitive abilities that evolved much earlier than 50,000 years ago. Part of the reason this debate has yet to be resolved is the ambiguity in the process of inferring behaviors and cognition from archaeological remains. Academics often disagree about what a specific artifact implies about its creator's capabilities. So with this debate in mind, let's get started exploring the life of people who inhabited Africa before some of them left the continent for good. The southern part of Africa includes the modern countries of South Africa, Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Mozambique, Eswatini, and Lesotho. It is bordered on the west by the Atlantic Ocean and on the south and east by the Indian Ocean. Running parallel to the coastline all the way around is the Great Escarpment, which separates the interior plateau of the continent from the lowland coastal plains. This region spans a wide range of climates and ecosystems, from the arid Kalahari Desert in the west to cool shrublands along the southern coast, to a narrow band of humid forest along the eastern coast, to drier grasslands and savannas in the interior. Of course, the distribution of these habitats shifted throughout the Middle Stone Age as the climate fluctuated. For example, in the interior, wetter periods saw woodlands and savannas replace grasslands. Along the southern coast, colder periods saw shrublands expand at the expense of forests. The vast majority of archaeological sites dated to the Middle Stone Age are found in the country of South Africa, at the southern tip of the continent. 
We know that humans were also living farther to the north during the Middle Stone Age because tools, including prepared cores, points, and scrapers, have been found in Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, and Mozambique. However, limited archaeological research in these countries means that we have few concrete dates for these tools, making it difficult to reconstruct the prehistoric timeline in those locations. So the bulk of information in this episode will be from South Africa. We start our story today during the Ice Age that lasted from 191 to 128,000 years ago. This cool phase was one of persistence and continuity for humans in southern Africa. The environment in this region during Ice Ages was probably not too harsh. Average temperatures during the coldest years might have been around 11 degrees Celsius, 52 degrees Fahrenheit. Deposits of ancient pollen and marine sediments show that parts of southern Africa actually enjoyed increasing rainfall when the planet was colder. While this region did suffer arid periods during which the Kalahari Desert expanded, most of the time the environment in the east and south would have supported abundant plant and animal life. Based on the location of stone tools dated to this ice age, we know that human foraging bands lived in southern Africa and successfully adapted to a wide range of habitats. In the arid grasslands of the western interior, they relied on springs, rivers, and lakes as sources of water and prey. In the eastern savannas and woodlands of Zimbabwe, they made stone points and scrapers to hunt, butcher, and work the hides of zebra and antelope, like hartebeest and blesbok. On the coasts, foragers hunted a variety of grazing and browsing mammals, like eland, wildebeest, and springbok. We know that humans hunted these animals based on the frequency of bones with cut marks found along with the remains of human-made fires and stone tools. At this point in prehistory, southern African foragers mostly napped these tools at the moment they needed them to make a weapon, harvest the meat of an animal, or shape wooden implements. Napping refers to the shaping of stone tools by removing flakes. The improvisational nature of these tools is seen in their haphazard and inconsistent shape. Studies suggest that during this ice age, foragers usually did not transport stones beyond a few kilometers. Amazingly, these tools were very similar to those made in this region 150,000 years earlier. People continued making Levallois points and blades, much as early Homo sapiens had since the adoption of prepared cores. The longevity of this way of life for our species is remarkable and has led some scholars to suggest that these humans were lacking some form of intelligence that we possess today. While this ice age is marked by continuity, it also harbors interesting glimpses into the daily life of early human hunter-gatherers. About 200,000 years ago, in a large rock shelter referred to as Border Cave, near the eastern coast of South Africa, people made beds from layers of grass. These mats were about 2 meters long and were arranged next to their fires. This is the oldest evidence of plant bedding, and a close investigation of the remains showed that these mats were often remade by burning them and layering fresh grass on the resulting ash. This ash, along with aromatic leaves placed in the bedding, helped keep away pesky insects. Not only did they sleep on these mats, but they also worked stone tools and ochre while sitting in them, based on the presence of these materials mixed in with the remains of the bedding. These mats are evidence that humans were creating organized and clean campsites that they returned to repeatedly. Border Cave also provides a glimpse of the Middle Stone Age diet. This rock shelter revealed the earliest evidence of cooked starchy plant food from about 177,000 years ago. The remains of about 55 charred cylindrical tubers were found in ancient fireplaces and ash piles, suggesting that they were roasted in hot coals. It has long been hypothesized that starchy roots of plants must have supplemented other sources of food 
like meat for early Homo sapiens. In fact, there is evidence in our genes that our species evolved to digest starch better than any other hominin, including our close relatives like Neanderthals and Denisovans. We know this because many duplicates of the gene to produce amylase, one of the enzymes that digest starch, appeared in our genome about 300,000 years ago. In order to efficiently collect these wild roots, Middle Stone Age people probably made simple digging sticks. Not only were humans foraging starchy roots, they were also eating shellfish. Pinnacle Point Cave on the south coast contains the earliest evidence of human collection and consumption of marine food resources, specifically mussels. Based on the quantity of shells found in archaeological layers dating to 164,000 years ago, it is thought that this food resource was only occasionally collected and eaten at this site. But it shows that humans by this point had figured out how to extract food from rocky intertidal pools. Aside from shellfish, starchy roots, grass for bedding, and meat of large animals, Southern African foragers of this ice age must have also used many other wild resources, for which we've yet to find evidence. This simple lifeway, based on hunting of large animals with stone-tipped spears and collecting plant food, had probably existed in Southern Africa for more than 100,000 years, and for early members of our species would have seemed like a timeless way of living. One hundred and twenty-eight thousand years ago marks a dramatic shift in global climate and serves as a useful dividing line in prehistory. At this date, our planet warmed by more than 10 degrees Celsius over a short period and took the Earth from a deep ice age to a warm interglacial phase. This was the last time temperatures were warmer than they are today. Sea levels rose by more than 100 meters and flooded vast stretches of low-lying coastland. Humans living near the coast would have moved inland, and much evidence of coastal habitation during the previous ice age was washed away, lost to archaeology. Surprisingly, in southern Africa, this last interglacial doesn't seem to have impacted human groups significantly. After 128,000 years ago, people continued to live much as they had during the previous cold period. The types of stone tools they used didn't change much. Humans mostly made points and blades, which did not exhibit any regional style in their shape or production techniques. There's evidence from caves along the coast that people continued to forge, cook, and eat roots and shellfish. On the coast and further inland, they hunted similar species of antelope as they had before. One interesting discovery from the site of Florisbad is that humans there ate significant amounts of hippopotamus, probably by scavenging meat from these creatures when they died naturally. On the whole, human bands seem to have adapted to this new climate without radically shifting their technology or subsistence strategy. This sets southern Africa apart from other regions of the continent. During this last interglacial, as the environment in eastern and northern Africa became more favorable, there seems to have been a general increase in the human population, and an adoption of new technology and social practices. The stability of human lifeways in southern Africa, in contrast to those further north, is probably due to the relative dryness of interglacials in southern Africa. Various paleoenvironmental records show that the amount of rainfall decreased around 128,000 years ago, which meant that the landscape during this warm phase might not have been that much more favorable for human life than during colder periods. In fact, pollen records show that grasslands replaced forests as southern Africa got drier. Human bands must have been able to successfully apply their existing tools to this changing environment. One way that people adapted to this interglacial was by hunting more grassland species of antelope 
and fewer animals common in woodlands than they had during the Ice Age. After 10,000 years of a very warm climate, Earth began to cool off. This process was gradual and intermittent, but lasted for tens of thousands of years. This period, known as the Last Ice Age, encompasses the end of the Middle Stone Age and the beginning of the Late Stone Age of Africa. It is in the midst of this cooling that unique developments in human lifeways and creative expression finally appeared in Southern Africa. These innovations started slowly, but intensified at one of the coldest periods of the last Ice Age. Signs of growing complexity in the behavior of Southern African foragers appeared around 100,000 years ago. One indication of change is that ochre becomes ubiquitous in archaeological layers dated after this point, often in large quantities, up to a thousand pieces in a single cave. This red-colored stone had been used during the start of the Middle Stone Age, but now people were exploiting it to a greater extent, collecting it everywhere they went. Foragers might have been finding more uses for the powder that was produced by grinding it. Ochre powder can be used as an ingredient in sunscreen, preservatives of animal skins, paints, and adhesives. But one of the most interesting developments of this period is that people started using soft ochre stones as surfaces on which to etch patterns. This early form of engraving, dated to 100,000 years ago, has been found in three caves along the southern coast. Whereas some of these pieces look like they could have been accidental scratches, others were clearly deliberate based on the geometric arrangement of regularly spaced parallel and crossing lines. We don't know what these engravings meant to the people who made them. They were rare during the Middle Stone Age, only found at a handful of sites in the region. But these artifacts found in the caves of South Africa have been interpreted as the earliest abstract art of prehistory. They are potential evidence that people in this period had minds that could create symbolic meaning, a defining quality of modern human thought. Ochre engravings are not the only evidence of artistic production from this time. About 100,000 years ago, at Blombos Cave on the south coast, two large abalone shells were used to mix and store an ochre-rich substance. Residue on the inside of the shells shows that ochre powder had been combined with a fatty substance, heated animal bone, charcoal, and an unknown liquid. This compound mixture, possibly a paint, must have been the result of experimenting with different combinations of ingredients in order to attain specific physical properties. The level of problem-solving involved in its creation demonstrates the capacity to reason much like we do today. At the same time that symbolic behavior was appearing among human groups, their foraging strategies were becoming more varied. Along with several types of antelope, people also frequently hunted or scavenged tortoises and small mammals like hares, rats, and the rock-dwelling hyrax. In forested environments of the East Coast, there is evidence of hunting bush pigs, among a variety of other small animals. Along the southern coast, humans occasionally captured an extinct species of giant buffalo, a 2,000-kilogram beast with meter-long horns. A stone point was found lodged into the neck vertebrae of one of these giant creatures at Classy's River Cave. This direct evidence suggests that the most likely method of capture for such a large, dangerous animal was with a pitfall trap, with stone-tipped spears at the bottom. Along with terrestrial animals, there is evidence from several coastal caves that after 110,000 years ago, humans were using marine food resources consistently. This was different from the occasional haphazard collection of mollusks observed at Pinnacle Point Cave during the previous Ice Age. The quantities of shells buried in the sediments of caves from this period 
suggests that shellfish were collected several times a year by people living along the coast. The intentional nature of this foraging is seen in the strong preference for certain species of mussels and sea snails from the intertidal zone of the shore, which would have been easy to access during low tides. After gathering the shellfish, they carried it back to their campsite, often several kilometers away. Less common than shellfish, the remains of small marine fish in two caves suggest that a few foraging groups had learned to fish, although the method of capture is uncertain. Finally, most foraging groups on the coast occasionally hunted seals, probably when they came to rest on the ocean shore. The variety of animal remains left by foragers seems to be evidence of an expansion of subsistence strategies starting around 100,000 years ago. A wide range of hunting, gathering, trapping, and fishing techniques would have been required to successfully forage for animals from such different habitats and of such different sizes. The broadening of food sources and the use of symbolism will increase in subsequent periods in southern Africa. These trends have been variously attributed to changes in human cognitive abilities, environmental conditions, and human population densities. We will consider these possibilities more as we continue. Along with changing subsistence strategies and symbolic behavior, after 100,000 years ago, regional patterns in stone tool preferences start to emerge between foragers in different parts of southern Africa. Here again, we see a subtle shift in the nature of human behavior. In general, they continued using the typical Middle Stone Age toolkit of points, blades, and scrapers, but their preferred type of tool varied. In the eastern savannas, we see the adoption of long, narrow tools, which are sharpened at one end, much like a chisel. These so-called end scrapers appeared sometime after 97,000 years ago, and were absent from sites to the west. In contrast, around the same time on the western and southern coasts, there was a noted inclination for a type of tool called a denticulate, in which sharp teeth are made along the edge of a tool. The practical use of end scrapers and denticulates is unclear, but archaeologists interpret this differentiation in tool type as evidence of loose connections between forager bands within each region people were not only passing down their stone napping techniques to the next generation, but they were also copying the shapes of tools made by their neighbors. After 80,000 years ago, possibly even earlier, another unique regional phenomenon arose in the savannas and forests of the east. Many foraging groups there started making an intricate type of tool called a bifacial point. These were made by chipping off small flakes from a point after having detached it from the core. This retouching added another step to the manufacture of the tools, but produced a higher quality point. They are called bifacial points because they are retouched along the entire margin of both faces or sides of the stone. When people in southern Africa started making them, Bifacial points only constituted a small portion of all tools made, but as time passed, they would become the dominant style spearhead used by hunters across the landscape. It is this technological shift which holds the key to understanding the development of the first regional culture in southern African prehistory. Sometime around 73,000 years ago, the Still Bay culture appeared along the coastal plains of southern Africa. As with many archaeological cultures, it was named after the first location where it was discovered. This is the first clearly identifiable set of technological and social innovations shared across a wide area by foragers in this region. These shared customs reflect strengthening connections between bands of humans. 
The defining feature of the still bay culture is the bifacial point, similar to those that had appeared sporadically in preceding millennia. However, starting about 73,000 years ago, bifacial points became the majority of tools produced and were made to a higher standard than before. They were between 4 and 12 centimeters long and shaped like an elliptical leaf, sometimes even ending in points at both ends. They were carefully crafted and often made of colorful fine-grained stones. These leaf-shaped points were used primarily to make spears and knives. The double-pointed shape might have been a design to facilitate hafting at the end of a shaft. Evidence of resharpening shows that they were valued possessions that were maintained over long periods. One of the amazing aspects of this culture is that these clearly identifiable leaf-shaped points were used by foraging bands that lived thousands of kilometers apart. More than 10 caves with still bay points have been found along the western, southern, and eastern coasts of southern Africa. Bifacial points have been found in Botswana and Zimbabwe and are thought to be from the Middle Stone Age, but since few sites there have been dated, we can't say if they were related to the still bay points. Consistency across the region is even more impressive when considering the complex series of steps necessary to make still bay points. First, point makers separated a flake from a prepared core. Next, they used a hard stone hammer, followed by a soft bone hammer for more control, to nap off successively smaller flakes until the shape of the point was achieved. Innovative techniques appeared for the first time in African prehistory in order to make these points, including heat treatment of stone in fire to improve its physical characteristics for napping, and pressure flaking, which is the removal of tiny flakes around the edge of a stone tool by pressing a piece of bone or antler into it. Pressure flaking was used by still bay point makers to apply the finishing touches, which made their spearheads thinner and sharper. The difficulty of making these tools is attested to by the presence of many broken leaf-shaped points, which were failed attempts. A careful comparison of tools at different stages of production from the archaeological sites on the western and eastern coasts show that people were following the same manufacturing steps even though they were thousands of kilometers apart. This raises an interesting question. How did the knowledge of this complex technique spread with such consistency? Experts believe that the only way to transfer such specialized knowledge is for one person to teach another through demonstration, probably over an extended period. This conclusion implies stronger connections between foraging bands across the southern African landscape at 73,000 years ago than ever before. We don't know the exact nature of these interactions, but many archaeologists have proposed that at the beginning of the Still Bay culture, there was a growing importance of networks of exchange, which facilitated the sharing of technological innovations. Meetings between forager bands are common among modern hunter-gatherer groups and serves as occasions to swap or gift valuable items, negotiate the use of resources, and socialize. The knowledge of how to make leaf-shaped bifacial points might have spread along a network of forager bands that came into existence on the southern coast of Africa. Some archaeologists have proposed that the forests of the eastern coast were the source of the still bay, based on the early presence of bifacial points there. The appearance of this cohesive technology has even been interpreted as evidence of a shared language and ethnic identity. These leaf-shaped points were not the only technological innovation of the still bay culture. For the first time in southern Africa, people made formal tools out of animal bones, including points for hunting weapons, hammers for flaking stone, and awls, 
which are pointed tools used to pierce materials like animal hides. The bone points are especially interesting because after being shaped by scraping with a stone tool, they were polished smooth with a softer surface. Polishing served no functional purpose and is interpreted as an aesthetic preference. Bone tools have only been found at one location, Blombos Cave, among the Still Bay sites, but they highlight the uniqueness of this period within the Middle Stone Age. The Still Bay culture is not only special for its innovative technology, but also for new forms of symbolic expression. There is evidence from two Still Bay sites that people made personal ornaments out of seashells. Using a bone awl, they pierced holes in the shells of a type of sea snail called Nasarius. Evidence of stringing the beads together comes from polished edges of the drilled holes, which must have resulted from rubbing against a cord. Some beads have ochre residue on them, possibly from being painted, while others were blackened in a fire. Useware of the shell beads was analyzed to determine that two different styles of stringing were used, each associated with a different phase of the Still Bay period. Exactly where on the body these beads were worn is unknown, but this is the earliest evidence of personal ornamentation in southern Africa, and shows us that people of this culture were concerned with how they were perceived by others. This awareness probably reflects a change in social dynamics associated with stronger regional connections. Another type of evidence for symbolic behavior is the presence of ochre engravings in Still Bay archaeological layers. These are similar to the ones that were made in the preceding 20,000 years, but the engravings dated to the Still Bay are the most striking examples of abstract art from the Middle Stone Age. They seem to include the repetition of a cross-hatched motif with parallel lines intersected by regularly spaced diagonal lines. This design was not only engraved, but also drawn on a stone using an ochre crayon. The cause of these dramatic changes in technological practices and social dynamics during the Still Bay period is a mystery. The most popular theory argues that an increase in human population density or greater mobility led to a stronger connection between human groups. Greater population density might have put greater stress on food resources and incentivized the development of new technologies to make foraging more efficient. The formation of more formalized networks of cooperation may have required the creation of a stronger sense of group membership, which was represented by things like fancy points and personal ornamentation. The problem with this theory is that it's difficult to prove whether or not southern African populations at the time were getting bigger or more mobile. Local temperature and precipitation records show that although the climate was several degrees colder than today, southern Africa was becoming more humid when the Still Bay culture began. So it's unclear whether changes in people's behavior stemmed from a shift in environmental conditions. As with cultural changes from later periods of prehistory, environmental and social factors probably interacted in complex ways. Also, as we have seen, there were precursors in southern Africa leading up to the Still Bay, including engravings and bifacial points going back tens of thousands of years. This culture is not a revolutionary change in human behavior, but an evolution and intensification of local technology and customs. Whatever the reason for its appearance, the Still Bay culture was short-lived, lasting only about a thousand years. Its disappearance is even more of a mystery than its arrival. After about 71,000 years ago, leaf-shaped points fell out of use. In fact, there's very little evidence of human presence in the region for the next few millennia. The most likely scenario was that an unfavorable climate drove people to migrate to find better hunting grounds. Under this stress, the web of connections built between foraging groups broke. 
but the Still Bay would not be the end of cultural innovations during the Middle Stone Age of Southern Africa. And above layers of dirt filled with leaf-shaped points, archaeologists have found the remains of a much more resilient culture. About 5,000 years after the disappearance of the Still Bay, a new, remarkably flexible culture emerged in southern Africa. The name given to it by archaeologists is Howison's Port. The people of this culture used innovative hunting weapons and new forms of symbolic expression. Unlike the Still Bay, the Howison's Port was not limited to the coasts, but also found inland across vastly different environments, like high up in the Drakensberg Mountains and the arid semi-desert of the Kalahari. Remains of the Howison's Port have been found at more than 20 sites in South Africa, Lesotho, and Namibia. Even tools from Botswana seem to share technological similarities with this culture. The spread of the Howison's Port to people living across such a wide variety of ecosystems demonstrates the power and flexibility of its technology, which may have contributed to the longevity of this culture, which endured for over 6,000 years. Howison's Port stone tools were much different than those of the Still Bay and the rest of the Middle Stone Age. The diagnostic artifact of the Howison's Port culture falls into a category of tools called backed geometric. This type of tool was made by retouching a thin blade into very specific shapes, such as triangles or trapezoids. The geometric tools of the people of the Howison's Port were often shaped like a half or crescent moon. They were smaller than typical Middle Stone Age tools and ranged from 2 to 5 centimeters long. The straight edge of the crescent was sharp and the rounded edge was backed, or blunted, so that it could be easily attached to a handle. These crescents were made on fine grain rock more often than tools from any other period of the Middle Stone Age. The increased use of high-quality raw materials suggests that people placed greater importance on stone tool technology during this period. Given the small size of the Howison's Port crescents, it is believed that several were inserted into a single handle in a variety of configurations. So mastering a single napping technique allowed these foragers to make different types of composite tools, depending on the way the crescents were arranged on the handle. Geometric tools from various Howison's port sites contain the residue of glue made out of a combination of plant resin and ochre. Adding ochre to the sticky resin made it a more resistant adhesive. While the leaf-shaped points of the Still Bay culture were exceptional for the skill required to produce them, the Howison's port crescents were unique in their efficiency and versatility. Archaeologists believe that the flexibility provided by composite hafted tools allowed people to adapt to a wide range of environments. In fact, the crescents varied in size, shape, and production methods from site to site, which suggests that they serve different functions for different groups. Back geometric tools are considered by archaeologists to be a very important technological innovation in the history of our species, and they are widely used later on in prehistory. The flexible nature of the Howison's port is also reflected in the diet. Much like earlier in the Middle Stone Age, forager bands from this culture continued to collect and eat starchy plants and shellfish. But evidence from animal bones suggests that people were hunting a wider range of prey than ever before. They commonly hunted at least 30 different species at a single site. On the eastern and western coasts, we know that they hunted large animals like buffalo and wildebeest. But unlike any other period of the Middle Stone Age, the majority of their prey weighed less than 25 kilograms. They frequently hunted or trapped baboons, bush pigs, 
warthogs, rats, and tiny varieties of antelope. The favorite prey of the foragers of the eastern forests was the blue duker, a miniature antelope weighing only 7 kilograms. The hunting choices of these people tells us something important about their culture. Pursuing smaller prey, like the people of the Howison's Port did frequently, is usually less efficient than hunting large animals, because a successful kill takes about the same amount of time, but provides less meat. In fact, among many groups of modern hunter-gatherers, anthropologists have observed a preference for larger prey. This logic has led many archaeologists to suggest that Howison's Port hunters might have pursued smaller animals out of necessity, perhaps due to less access to large game. Fewer large animals could be the result of an unfavorable climate. 65,000 years ago, at the start of the Howison's Port period, the planet was especially cold, about 6 degrees Celsius colder than today, and similar to the Still Bay. Some experts have even connected the technological innovation of back geometric tools to the hunting of smaller animals under harsher environmental conditions. But how exactly southern African foragers use these crescents for hunting is the subject of much debate among experts. Some propose that use wear and impact damage on these stones indicate that people were using them to construct arrows, either as a point at the front or as barbs on the side of a multi-component arrow. Bone tools, including points, have been found at two Howison's Port sites. One of these has damage consistent with it being an arrow point. If these interpretations are correct, the people of the Howison's Port would be the earliest inventors of the bow and arrow. This technology would have radically changed the way humans hunted. Bows increase the range and efficiency of a hunter compared to a spear or javelin. Smaller animals would have been easier to hunt. However, the evidence for Howison's Port bow and arrows is not conclusive. Most of the crescents are larger and heavier than arrowheads from more recent prehistoric cultures. Critics of the bow and arrow hypothesis argue that these crescents would have been more suited to being spear points and knives. Aside from their innovative tools, the people of the Howison's Port culture also created symbolic objects. These items were different from those of the Still Bay culture. For example, no evidence has been found that they wore any shell beads as ornaments, but they did make engravings. Some of these were made in pieces of ochre like the people the Still Bay had made, but they also engraved ostrich eggshells. Dozens of pieces have been found at three different sites on the western coast and have more complex patterns than any ochre engraving. Different motifs have been identified, including ladder-like patterns, and they change from the start to the end of the Howison's port. Similar motifs were shared by people living hundreds of kilometers apart. This connection is the strongest evidence from this period that foraging bands were organized into networks of exchange, as seen during the Still Bay. Ostrich eggs are known to have been used in later periods of African prehistory as water bottles, and three fragments of shells from the Howison's port period have holes pierced in them which may suggest a functional use in addition to their decorative nature. Finally, during the Howison's port, people began engraving long rib bones of animals with a series of notches. The equidistant spacing of these marks implies that they were made intentionally, but their purpose remains elusive. Interpretations vary from tools for abrading animal hides to primitive musical instruments, to notational devices to keep track of the lunar cycle. The appearance of the Howison's port so suddenly and with such a strikingly unique material culture has led some archaeologists to suggest that it was brought by migrants from the north. They specifically point to similarities between the crescents of southern Africa and geometric tools found in eastern and central Africa. 
However, close studies of the remains from the Howison's port also revealed the continued use of stone tools like denticulates common during previous eras in southern Africa. This seems to hint that the Howison's port culture evolved within the local population. The end of the Howison's port culture around 59,000 years ago was less dramatic than that of the Still Bay. On the eastern coast, many caves continued to be occupied as foragers gradually abandoned geometric tools in favor of more traditional Levallois points and scrapers. The climate was warming, and hunters went back to pursuing larger animals. During this transition, symbolic objects like engravings became rare. On the west coast, the story is different, and human presence completely disappears at many sites after the Howison's port which probably reflects a decline in the human population in the arid western grasslands. In retrospect, the Howison's port marked a peak in cultural complexity that was not seen again in southern Africa until the arrival of the late Stone Age about 14,000 years later. As we step back and look at the end of the Middle Stone Age from 100,000 to about 45,000 years ago, we see that humans in southern Africa demonstrated the potential for technological innovation, artistic expression, and expanding social dynamics. But these behaviors were only fully realized during short, isolated episodes, after which people reverted to simpler lifeways. These intervals are glimpses into the capabilities of human minds before our species permanently expanded out of the African continent. Yet the disappearance of the Still Bay and Howison's port illustrate the fragility of early technological and social systems. Some interpret this instability as evidence of some inherent cognitive shortcoming among humans from the Middle Stone Age. Others argue that declines in cultural complexity are seen throughout our history and are part of a fundamental pattern in human societies. In the next episode, we will head up to Eastern and Central Africa and explore the trajectory of human behavior in the grasslands, forests, and mountains in and around the Rift Valley and the Congo River. This has been Our Prehistory. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider visiting this podcast Patreon page and becoming a contributor so that I can continue bringing you Our Prehistory.